Yo, what's up, everybody? It's not often you get to sit down and speak to a member of the Illuminati. Uh, I'm only partially joking. Our guest today is awesome. His name is Gabe Batstone, and he is the CEO and co-founder of a company called Context Air, uh, who provide AI and machine learning solutions to frontline workers in the defense and aerospace industry. And uh, while we are speaking, uh, he is virtually attending Davos. We had an interesting conversation just about his attending, you know, panels with the CEO of Budweiser, Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping. He's got a lot of cool stories and it's just an awesome guy with a wealth of experience. And, you know, for me, it's a refreshing take to talk to somebody who's working on a software company that is designed to solve problems uh, sort of in meat space. Enjoy. All right. So could you could you explain the origin of Context Air, your company's name? Absolutely. So Context Air is actually from a Latin word, right, or is a Latin word more specifically. And we chose it for two reasons. One is the actual definition is to weave together. And something that we fundamentally believe that when you're trying to solve real business problems, particularly in the industrial world, there is no silver bullet, right? You, you, it takes a weaving together of different technologies, right? AI, but also IoT, you know, and also enterprise data. And likewise, when you're weaving that together, you have to look at the different context of that situation, right? Nothing exists in isolation. And, and not surprisingly, that word, of course, is the source um, for the English word context. And of course, mm. you know, in the old days, we used to say content is king. Uh, I like to say now context is king. Mm, that's awesome. So since most people are listening to this, they can't see the tagline of blue collar AI. So could you just explain that a little bit? You know, how is that relevant to the name uh, context there? Sure. So, you know, it was our attempt to a little bit strike out and position where we fit. You know, one of the challenges of being in AI um, is that everybody's an AI company now. Um, and some of that is the marketing hype that everyone's latched onto it and says they use AI. But then I think there's actually a real piece to that is AI is a foundational technology and actually AI should be a part of every company. So then how would you distinguish yourself as, as a native AI company for lack of a better term? Mm. And, and for us, it came down to our experiences where we understand business problems and where we think we have the most impact is on the last tactical mile. Mm. Right. It's where people put warm hands on cold steel. They mm. install, maintain, repair, inspect complex equipment. So mm. that's that's our target market. We talk to aerospace and defense. We talk to oil and gas, to power and utilities, to agriculture, to those heavy steel industries. And so what we wanted people to know is, you know, when we talk about AI, it's about industrial AI and not just the industry side of that, but I think another piece is to the blue collar workers, to the people who mm. actually perform those roles, who really have been left behind in past technological revolutions. If you go today and look at how a power line worker works, how an airplane mechanic works, how a person who fixes the rail you know, works, you'll be shockingly disappointed, I would say, at the amount of technology that's made it from headquarters in Silicon Valley into their hands. And so mm. for us, we were like, no, we're going to use AI to support those people who do the hardest jobs, right? If nothing else over the last year, what have we seen? Who's important? Frontline workers, right? right. Well, frontline workers isn't just nurses and grocery store clerks. Frontline workers are also power line techs and building maintenance managers and aerospace technicians. And so we wanted to do a nod to them and a bit of our passion really is around the blue collar side of AI. 
Why do you think technology hasn't made it to that sort of, of work vertical, you know, this blue collar work vertical? So it boils down to, I think, two big aspects, one cultural uh, and one uh, more the nature of the way technology is developed. So if I start mm. with the second, right, as engineers, right, and data scientists and developers, we develop for people like us, right? Your natural thing is, hey, you know, so we go and talk to engineers, right? So you talk to people who build the aircraft, not the people who repair it. And so right. when you go to get your data and figure out the problems, you don't talk to a line mechanic, right? You don't talk to an ops supervisor, right? You talk to the people who sit at a desk. And as a result, you know, if you ask the same people the same question, right, you get the same answer. And so you, they didn't even see that problem. So the big tech companies, this isn't a user base that they're comfortable with or that they even know, right? They didn't know the problem exists to solve it. Um, another reason um, that that's true is there are a lot of stereotypes about the blue collar worker, right? That those jobs are hammer and nails and, and simple and easy. And unless you've been on the last tactical mile and, you know, I've been fortunate. I always laughingly say, you know, I've been from Alabama to Afghanistan. <laughs> so, you know, so Aniston army arsenal in Alabama, where they used to rebuild Bradley's uh, tanks and to Afghanistan supporting the Afghan national army and, and how to understanding the new NATO weapons um, that we were giving them. To, you know, to Turkey, to everywhere in between, you know, there's some commonalities there. One is that the workers are very similar, right? In that those are hard jobs that require your brain. It isn't what's between your hands. It actually is what's between your ears that makes the difference in that job. And they don't dislike technology, right? They're quite comfortable with it, but it needs to work because they're in an environment where mission critical is common, where safety is an issue. And so it needs to work. So they don't have a huge tolerance for the Silicon Valley. Well, let's break it and see what happens. Well, you know, in the real industrial world, you don't get to just break stuff and see what happens, right? Because that stuff is a plane that takes 300 people, you know, 20,000 feet in the air or a train that goes 200 miles an hour, or, you know, these are real, the real world, as I like to call it, which is unfair. It's all the real world, but the industrial world has a different set of requirements. And so that's another reason the technology didn't get there is I'd say some bias and stereotype about the users. And then just the reality of software developed out of engineering shops and labs. And that's not where you're going to find these users. So you're never going to hear those problems. Right. That that's interesting. I mean, it's definitely a great point that sort of like, you know, they call it cyberspace and meat space and meat space. You just have lower tolerance for risk because it affects human life, you know, more so than an application, you know, and, and there are many applications that obviously, you know, affect human life, but that's an interesting point. So, you know, are there regulatory considerations to the pace of change and in innovation, or is it mainly just that the markets themselves don't um, allow this sort of startup mentality, software risk-taking mentality? And is that why historically there hasn't been much technology innovation there? Or it's just companies are disregarding it because like you said, they're not focused on that problem. They're not even aware that it, that it existed. I think like many things, it's, it's a little bit of each, right? So certainly you know, regulation is a part of these industries, right? Whether it be the FAA, right? Or the military, you know, never lacks requirements or, or regulations or power and utilities. All of these are highly regulated environments. But in fact, in our case, that's one of the uh, features that we see of the market. When we look for the problems, we were like, we need complex organizations with lots of blue collar workers in complex environments that are preferably regulated. Because for us, every, each one of those features that you add or qualifications actually increases the ROI, right? The return mm. on investment of what you're going to bring. Mm. And so now having said that, and I suppose this is where, you know, being 
we'll call it not young entrepreneur has advantages is you know that some of those challenges are really just a matter of getting shit done to be blunt, right? right. So yeah, you need to be security qualified. You need to understand ITAR and a bunch of acronyms that you don't, but those aren't barriers actually. That's just process that you need to go through. And I've found particularly in the defense environment where I spent a good portion of my career, if anything, they're more risk tolerant than anyone I know, right? Mm. Because they're so outcome, so mission focused that they will tolerate mistakes in a way that many other industries do. And their workers, right, are patriots who dedicate their lives to the country. So they're also willing to take risks in a way that maybe a union worker in an auto factory isn't. Um, and again, not to say one's better than the other at, at all. Just those are different risk profiles. Those are different demographics and, and different passions for work. And so as a result, I think, you know, the environment is there for risk, but you certainly, you know, you've got to put your big boy pants on. This is not, you know, fun business. This is do the hard work of getting it right. Um, and if you want to just play around and try, then no, it's not your environment. But if you're dedicated to the space and you are willing to build relationships, it can happen because people are like, oh, it's easy for you, Gabe. You know, you're a, you're a defense expert. Um, so one, I'd question that. But two, even if I am now, <laughs> I certainly wasn't when I went down this journey 20 years ago, right? I'm a hockey playing Canadian who has no relationship with the military other than respect for it. Right. Right? But I didn't, I didn't know, you know, any of these acronyms. I only became it by having an honest intellectual curiosity and interest to solve those problems and you meet people and it grows over time. You know, expertise is you aren't born with it, right? You, you develop it and, and any entrepreneur, you know, of any age can go get it because the other thing, you know, stereotype that I would say about aerospace and defense is, oh, it's a closed, you know, it's the old boys network and it's, you know, friends and family. And again, you know, I grew up, uh, you know, lower middle-class kid, you know, with nothing special going on in my life. Um, and they welcomed me with open arms. And, and if anything, I've found more people willing to mentor and mm -hmm. hope that you come and learn their industry than any other, I'd say aerospace and defense is, you know, number one. That's awesome. And so did you have partners when you started Context there? Did you start it? How did you conceive of the problem and how did you come up with the solution? So it really was born out of, you know, a long history of working on the last tactical mile that me and my co-founder, Carl Byer, shared. And, you know, the if you had to say, you know, when was it born? We were at a conference in San Francisco and, and just walking along uh, the piers, you know, looking out at the Golden Gate Bridge and just started a conversation that ended up with talking about Context. Um, mm. and, and why is all this cool technology that we know exists here in, in the Silicon Valley, how come it never makes it to when we're not at a conference, right? Why are the people who we care about, you know, doing those things? And, and so it started there. Um, and, and from there, we kind of built on, on the idea and we, we had that network of people that we could ask the questions, you know, Hey, is this a problem? Does it make sense? Um, and, and then Lockheed Martin, you know, uh, was, a, was our first um, customer and wow. I had a long relationship. Um, and, and that was born of experience. I'd worked on the F-35 program since 2003 uh, with a previous company. So, you know, as a trusted innovator within there, um, you know, and a lot of this is about trust. And, and so that was the big difference, right? So being able to say, you know, you're a couple of people, but Lockheed Martin's giving you, you know, over a million dollars to do some work in machine learning and, and AI helps um, as you go to raise money. And then BMW became an early investor. So, so the narrative slowly builds. So now it's like BMW's investor, Lockheed Martin's a customer and, you know, Samsung's a partner and people are like, I don't know who this guy is, but I probably should at least talk to him. Um, and, you know, <laughs> and that gets you to the next phase, right? Cause you're always just trying to get to the next phase, right? Like, you know, next hill to climb. And, and so, yeah, very early on, we partnered with Lockheed Martin, uh, and that made a huge difference in our trajectory. That's awesome. 
I guess, you know, if we, if we rewind 20 years back, you started your training as a mechanical engineer or what type of. So I come from a GIS background. So geographic okay. information system. So got it. Mapping guy um, and, and a little bit of business in there. And I, my career started with a company called Navtech who was about of the Silicon Valley um, and ended up in Chicago. And they were the maps that underlied MapQuest and, and uh, Microsoft Maps and every map really huge market dominance focused on automotive. Um, so I grew up in that environment of a very rapid, you know, startup where we went from, you know, zero to a hundred million in a few years. And, wow. and so I got to learn a lot of things as, as a guy on the ground floor, just, you know, uh, hammer and nail, so to speak. Yep. And that was a great experience. And so I came from that GIS background and that evolved into more 3D volumetric graphics and kind of evolved into uh, virtual reality and then augmented reality. So I'd always had this, this technology side to what I did, but, you know, I'd like to say sometimes, you know, context there is true competitive advantage outside of our technology is, is awesome, but it's a little bit of, we genuinely understand both Carl and I have spent our careers taking emergent technology, right? You know, bleeding edge technology and getting it not only into large organizations, but adopted in those organizations, actually used, right? So it's not hard to sell something once, but you need people to use it. And so that is only a little bit about technology, right? That's also understanding procurement, it's understanding security, it's understanding culture, it's really understanding how do Fortune 500, Global 2000 companies live and breathe. And, you know, and really, to some extent, when we take on a customer, I carry their badge, right? I become a part of their team. I'm like, how do I ensure Carrier is one of our customers? How do I make sure Carrier gets the most value out of this relationship? And sometimes that's our technology. Sometimes it's just a phone call on something I've seen another customer that I think would be useful for them. Sometimes it's being a sounding board as innovation is hard. It's really a personal relationship. And, I, you know, I always say, well, you might be in B2B. But to me, all business is personal, right? No business has ever written me a check. There's always somebody signed it, right? A person decided to share their hard-earned dollars or their corporate dollars with you. And you need to take that somewhat solemn responsibility to give back with it. And it's not just get as many customers as you can and, and then go get your Series A and your B like you're on some treadmill. To me, this is about very personal relationships with the people who work at these companies and providing value to where they work. That's such an interesting point. That's certainly a mentality that I think is I don't know if it's uncommon, but it's certainly not espoused broadly in the Silicon Valley, you know, high growth tech thought market. You know, if you look on Twitter and such, yeah. you know, it seems like a lot of businesses are only getting customers to get sufficient traction to raise their next round. Yeah. And they're spending that money on the Google and on the Facebook attention auction machines. <laughs> it's going from the pension funds to the VCs to the companies that are then spending it back into Google. So it's this really interesting loop. It uh, is. And, and that's not to say, you know, that there's anyone evil. And I, you know, sometimes sound like I'm of course. the Silicon Valley is bad. I of like course. the Silicon Valley, right? I spent lots of time in Sunnyvale when I worked for Navtech back in the day. Love the area, love the people. And by and large, everybody's trying to do good work there. You know, I think it's more a proxy for me of, I think we've collectively lost our way, right? You know, I mentor different companies and different people and, and we work in innovation centers uh, in New York City and, and Ottawa. And I see some of the mentoring and some of the guidance that's given to these young entrepreneurs. And we're training them that like, like a series a is like ring the bell 
right? Like, excited, <laughs> like, like that's a goal, right? And I was like, I grew up in the thing was you only rang that bell when somebody wrote you a check for a product or service you were going to give them back. Right. right. Like raising money just means that you weren't able to get a customer to give it to you. And it's like a, it's a path to get to that next step. And so I'm constantly kind of on top of them. Like victory is customers. Victory is sales at the end of the day. Um, and sales is not a four letter or five letter word. Like sales is an important thing because sales means somebody is giving you money in exchange for value back. Right. And that is the purpose of capitalism. That is the purpose of business. Your goal isn't to raise money. It's to make money. Um, and sometimes you have to raise money to make money. I get that. But I think we've forgotten that the point of raising money is eventually to make money, not just raise more. Right. Yeah, that's so true. Well, it's so funny because traditional valuation models you know, are based on generation of profit. But if you look at a lot of the projections that I think companies are raised based off of, it's like profit is such a far off thing and they're just trying to drive some top level user metric or some top level revenue metric without any consideration of the actual profitability of the firm that would drive the valuation. And, you know, it's all funny money, it seems. Um, you know, it drives me crazy is that we are inventing all these new metrics to replace the one that matters, which is, can you get someone to give you more money for what you provide than what it costs you? Yeah. Like, this is not hard. Like, this shouldn't be hard. But now, because <laughs> people got these massive companies and, you know, a local one, we're based in Ottawa right here in Canada. So right. great local company, Shopify, doing amazing things. And I love their story, except the one part where they don't seem to be able to actually make money. And, and I get <laughs> the idea that investing in the future is important. But I also think at some point, putting a pin in the ground to say, here's how we make money is also important. Perhaps, you know, maybe Amazon broke the system, right? So Bezos was, uh, was able to be the exception who created a new rule. I don't know, but I sure hope that we can find that balance because it isn't as simple as just make money, right? There is a reason for investment, for growth. I get that. But I think we've gone too far away from the basic model of you need to make money at some point and making money isn't bad. It's actually the point of all this. Well, you know, I don't know if you're following the stock market or if you can call it the stock market anymore, <laughs> but what's happening with GameStop and AMC, which is like a movie theater business. Yeah. Do you guys have that in Canada? Oh yeah. Uh, yep. Okay. You know, basically there's a subreddit called Wall Street Bets that realized that GameStop had a bunch of short positions taken on it from Wall Street. Okay. And, you know, GameStop is a retail company. Maybe they'll go out of business in the next 20 years. Who knows? They're a store company. So maybe Amazon will outcompete yeah. them. But the subreddit basically decided as a unit to go and pump the price of GameStop. And so this, I think stock was trading at 20 bucks a share and it's now trading at 400 bucks a share a week later. You know, the company is maybe worth 20, 25 bucks yeah. a share. And I think the same thing has happened with Tesla. The same thing is happening, mm -hmm. happening with AMC. And it begs the question of, you know, as entrepreneurs, we want to make a valuable company and we want that company to be valuable based on the value we deliver. But if you can raise hundreds of millions of dollars based on hype or millions of dollars in a private market based on hype from an investor, the question I ask myself is, does it not behoove you as a steward of the company to go and take that capital, even if it is based on hype, to then go accomplish your mission? Like, do you see an ethical problem with that thinking? Because I struggle with that. That's a question that I grapple with. You know, like, can you leverage the hype to go and accomplish your goal? Sorry, go on. <laughs> no, it's a uh, balance, right? Because also, you know, as a steward of the company, regardless of whether you like certain market dynamics or not, in theory, you should be 
utilizing them right to the best interest of your fiduciary duty to your customers, you know, similar to taxation, you know, like you should make sure you pay your taxes, but you also should make sure you shouldn't pay too many, right? Because your shareholders don't want you to pay more. Right. We've ended up in this weird thing where it's like, and maybe it'll change over the pandemic as businesses reputation, I'd say generally has improved a bit from where it started. Right. That either you were in business and you were, then you were kind of evil and trying to buy a yacht or <laughs> you had to do a not for profit. Right. Like, but you couldn't actually be like, I like to think that I'm a good actor as a CEO of a private company who wants to make money, but also do good in the world. And that I believe our company does good. Yeah. And the fact that we want to make profit and are profitable each year doesn't somehow magically turn us bad. Capitalism was founded on that, but you get these market adaptations and, and people who are misusing the principle and the concept. And it's really hard to spin that narrative to the broader public, right? You're just seen as evil. And, you know, this week I'm attending Davos. We're a member of the World Economic Forum. And I got the invite to uh, Davos this year, which was awesome. more exciting. Yeah, it would have been more exciting if I was in Switzerland. Uh, <laughs> so worst year ever to get the invite. But having said that, very, very. Oh, they're doing a remote? They're, yeah. So you, oh, virtual. my gosh. All virtual, yeah. yeah. It's like torture. Yeah. Uh, so it's been interesting to hear, you know, there's a lot of talk, Professor Schwab talks a lot about stakeholder capitalism, right? And, and that right. we as capitalists need to change it. And so that's very inspiring. And, and you're seeing governments and business come together. Our involvement in the World Economic Forum has been very positive because it's been what we found people like us, we're in business, but we also want to do good, right? Like I want to mentor New York City high school students as I do to help, you know, who are underprivileged to help get into college. And I also want to make sure that we are good actors from an environmental perspective, from an equity perspective. So we do all those things. And it's nice to see that you're not alone, right? There are big businesses and it's the Airbuses and Lockheeds and all the people who maybe wouldn't otherwise be associated with good. They all actually want to do good because that's the beauty of the market in theory, right? Is that we respond to the incentives given, you know, by the public, right? By the shareholders. So right. if you want to, to get rid of oil and gas, don't have it in your retirement portfolio, right? You know, <laughs> it's kind of that simple, right? Like, and, and so once we square the circle of maybe personal incentives and personal bias and that our actions as consumers match um, what we say on Twitter, it's not that actually hard to change the world. That's the beauty of capitalism. But it was good to see that most people have good intent and that we need to exploit that and focus on that and not so much on every mistake that's made and every exception that exists. Do you find that there's groupthink when you talk to folks that have been in Silicon Valley or part of big fang company? And do you find that there's, you know, let's say political groupthink, or do you find that there's a disconnection with the value of capitalism? Because I, like you, believe you know, I'm American, but my family's from India, which is a socialist country. It's capitalist now, but the constitution yeah. is a socialist constitution, which is funny to think about, right? Because you look at it and you go, that has basically failed the world over. And capitalism is the way to lift people out of poverty. I mean, it seems like to me, folks in the younger generation tend to think that that's approach that will create equity in the world. And it's interesting because who knows, maybe they could be right if they run an experiment, that's perfect, but I don't know. Do you find that there's groupthink there or do you find that most entrepreneurs who you're able to mentor and talk to sort of understand their contribution to the world through markets and such? Yeah, I think, so on the entrepreneur side, I, I do think that they really see and have a desire to change the world in a positive way, right? That they come at that honestly and I love the intent that I see from most entrepreneurs, right? I don't see them out there trying to figure out how to game the market. Yeah. I think that's good. I think where we failed many of them from an education perspective and maybe just a collaboration is that 
we haven't done enough. And, and to some extent, they haven't done enough to understand the why of, of why we do certain things, right? So we have capitalism for a reason. It wasn't because mm. they're like, hey, you know, what's the best way to get rich? Other systems failed, right? The wars were fought, you know, many lives were lost to get to the form of democracy we have, the form of capitalism we have in all countries, you know, around right. the world. And before you go and decide that it's wrong or you need to fix it, you first need to understand how you got to that point. So you make sure you don't break it worse. So I'd love to see a little more deliberation and understanding of how we got here before there's that rush to change things. And I think that segues a bit into the Silicon Valley's got it right. We need to do things different. We need to innovate. But don't forget, there's a reason that government has a really methodical, tiresome procurement process. And it isn't just because government workers like to go slow or they want to build a $400 hammer. Actually, there's a whole bunch of reasons. You need to understand those reasons before you change it. Right. And that's not to say you can't change it, but understand the original intent and how you evolve. And so I think that's sometimes missing. And then the other piece is I think there's a lot of talk about the greater good and and how we can fix things and maybe a bit too much bluster on how much impact technology on its own can have or Silicon Valley, you know, a good example. So yesterday I was on a panel or watching a panel and, you know, I had our deputy prime minister on it. It had BlackRock's CEO, Mr. Fink, it had Mark, you know, from Salesforce. And so one of the things he said, you know, and it was to me just an example of where the Silicon Valley just sometimes gets it a tiny bit wrong, is his intent was that, you know, from my belief, you know, not just before, how I was taking it up until this point was that the pandemic has shown that business leaders can have real impact and can make a difference and that capitalism is good and CEOs aren't bad, right? Because it can be tiresome to constantly hear that your job type means that you're bad or rich or, you know, right. profit hungry. But then it followed up with, and the, and the quote showed up on Twitter too, is, you know, to paraphrase slightly, you know, what the last year has shown in the pandemic, that some of the real heroes were CEOs. And it's just like, oh, okay, like, <laughs> I know what you mean, but that is, that's going to be taken out of context very easily. Um, and probably, you know, could have been better said as, you know, we've been able to empower frontline workers at our organizations, right, who are the real heroes, because, you know, CEOs aren't heroes, let's be blunt, right? You know, so men and women in uniform around the world with pointy guns aimed at people who have pointy guns pointed at them, nurses who are in hospitals risking COVID every day, grocery store workers who are making sure I can have my craft dinner for lunch. You know, there, there are a lot of people who are heroes before CEOs get in line. That's not to say they don't have an impact. And I think his intent was good, but it was just an example of, I think Silicon Valley has a messaging problem. Is mm. Sometimes they just miss the message to the broad audience because they live in a pretty isolated bubble. Yeah, no, that's so well said. I mean, so I love a podcast that's hosted by this guy, Jocko Willink, who was a Navy SEAL and he, cool. you know, commanded forces in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so he'll talk to his friends and people that he served with. And then I'll listen to a podcast you know, with a fellow tech CEO, who's like the hardest thing I ever had to do was I had to make a product decision. And (laughs) if you juxtapose those two things, it's just funny, you know, can't say anything to the tech CEO, because that's hard in the context of his or her life, you know, but it is funny, you take a step back, and you look at the global perspective, you're just like, wow, okay, in the scheme of things, these aren't that tough of decisions. It's a great example. And I guess I've been blessed by having, you know, my career spend so much time in those environments around the world. And, you know, people are often like, well, how can we change it? And 
if I had a magic wand, sometimes I think I would just get an economist, you know, the magazine, the economist subscription for yeah. every person in the world and make them read it. Right. Cause it just goes <laughs> through the world and you just get a greater, no matter where you live, you'll get a greater perspective for the complexities of the world. If you just read that magazine or newspaper once a week. So that would be my quick fix, but you know, you make a great point. Yeah, I'm curious. So you seem very thoughtful in terms of your perspective and how your company plays a role in society. Do you select for the same sort of awareness in your company when you build your team? How do you sort of instill these values in your organization? It is important. And we build our team like a team, right? You know, which is a mosaic of people. And we hire really based on traits and behaviors and desire more than skills, right? You can teach people skills, you know, whether if they, you know, know Python, but they don't do C sharp or, you know, all those different kinds of things we feel we can resolve. And so when we hire, we focus on a couple of things. One is intellectual curiosity. You know, so that's my number one trait that I love for people. Like, I just think you have to be curious, right? Curious about the world and what's happening in the world and beyond just your borders, right? We want people to take your vacation, like go take a cooking class. It, life isn't about context there. So there's that intellectual curiosity we think is important. And then the second is empathy, right? Yeah. There's no more important trait than empathy, right? And, and that's internal from, you know, salespeople recognizing that dev is hard and dev people recognizing the sales guys aren't trying to just sell anything and empathy for our customers. In our case, Fortune 500 customers are busy. So if someone doesn't return your email or call right away, it's not because it's not a slight against Gabe or it's not because they don't care about the project. It's probably because somebody else more important call. Right. So, <laughs> so be empathetic. And so we look at curiosity, empathy as kind of the key attributes to work. And then we focus what we call the compass, which is a concept I developed at a previous company that kind of focuses on our culture. And we break it into a couple of aspects. So one is values, right? So our corporate values are, as I talked about, empathy, curiosity, creativity, and resilience. Those are what we call non-negotiable. If you don't have those, you're not going to work here. And if you stuck in <laughs> without them, you won't work here for long, right? Those, yeah. those are, that's the foundation upon which we build everything. Um, and then in exchange for that, the environment that we commit, because it's got to be a two-way street. So that's what we demand of our employees and ourselves. And in exchange, the environment you're going to work in is transparent, market-driven, dynamic, and inclusive. And so that's kind of the trade-off. And so if you want to work in that environment and you have those values, we're going to figure out the skills and, and other things because it really is a team. And we talk about it. So I talk about that compass uh, at least every month, right, to just keep, keep reinforcing it. And I think more importantly, we all live it. Mm. Um, and so they see that, you know, Carl and I both run nonprofits uh, in addition to context there in our spare time. And, and we travel around the world and we mentor and do things to really show those people that it isn't a PowerPoint slide. Um, and isn't a talking point. It's something we live and we expect them to live it. And if they don't want to live it, that's fine. Just go work somewhere else. Mm, that's awesome. So this podcast somehow has like a listenership of 50,000, mostly developers, awesome. you know, so are you guys hiring remote roles for software engineering positions? This could be a good opportunity to point them to a link. If you guys have it on your website to apply directly. Yeah, to absolutely. You guys. We're always looking for great talent. And, you know, even before the pandemic, I was of the belief if there's a smart people somewhere, take them. And again, if that's India, that's great. If that's Africa, you know, if that's Ohio, right, you can't care. Smart people are the currency that you're looking for and you shouldn't care where you're going to get it. So we're always hiring. So because of the nature of the way we team build, you don't just go, oh, we have a posting and hope to get someone who fits that. You know, mm -hmm. So we're constantly what we call curating and meeting people to, to figure out, and then we'll bring them on and just figure it out. And so machine learning and full stack development tend to be the, the big two for us. 
And in particular right now, the UI, UX side of, of what we're doing in the mobile side is becoming more important. So anyone who's passionate about that and, and didn't think I sounded like a tool during the course of this uh, podcast, <laughs> you know, then I would suggest check out our website, which is not hard to find, contextair.com. And my email is also easy. It's just Gabe, G-A-B-E, at contextair.com. Um, and if you like to, another saying we have is play in traffic. So a little bit of Silicon Valley, a little bit of business, A plus B has to equal C, right? There's always got to be this clear thing. And unless you're a kid, you should play in traffic. Just <laughs> engage in the world around you. Do things that don't always have an outcome. Just be a good actor. You know, there's no bad time to be a good person. So that kind of philosophy and an agile work environment, because I don't want to portray, it's not Disney World working in a context there. We are going all over the map. We got big customers, big demands. So it's a hard job, but I would say it's a fun job. And the people who work there are all smarter than me and all more fun. And so I think it's a great place to work in my very biased opinion. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Gabe. It's a pleasure talking to you. No, thanks. Great job and anytime. Take care. Hey, thanks for checking out the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the hiring platform companies use to find the best talent in software development. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or work with us, head over to Gun.io to get in touch. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast, and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.